who's here for the first time today hasn't heard any of the Joseph sermons? Okay, well, bear with us. I hope we'll have something for you today. It's very much a, a sermon within a series, but as always, when we come to the Word of God, it's going to speak to us anyway. So uh, we are on chapter 42. We didn't start at chapter 1. You'll be glad to know we started at <laughs> chapter 37 because we're doing the story of Joseph. Uh, I'm going to read the whole chapter in a moment, and then we're going to go back through the chapter a bit more slowly and bring out some things. Uh, now, I commented in the week to a friend that this feels very much to me like a sermon that's sort of in the middle of a story. And that's the challenge of a series like this, because it's a one long story of the life of a man that covers many, many chapters. Scripture gives a big chunk of time and uh, place to Joseph and the life of Joseph. So we've chopped it up to really take our time over it. But it does mean that then you get a little bit of the story in the middle. And last week... Uh, John spoke and we heard about Joseph and how he'd been elevated to power and become a very important man and did an incredible job in Egypt. And next week we'll hear the resolution of this little bit of the story we're going to look at today. So I've got a little bit in the middle which led my friend to say, oh, you've got the Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> which for some of you, you know, that'll mean something. For others, you're like, what? It's a film. And it's the film of the, you know, the old Star Wars trilogy. It's the one in the middle that's sort of meh, kind of on its own doesn't really mean very much. So... If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. <laughs> Sorry? Oh, I've got, I've got objections. I've got objections in the crowd already. Oh, what an own goal. <laughs> Sorry, Dom. Okay, let's just pray. Father, as we come to your word, we come uh, with open hearts and minds, Lord, humbly before you, and say, would you meet with us through your word? Would you teach us? Would you quicken our hearts? Enable us to receive from you, enable us uh, to discern what you're saying to us and ultimately to have hearts that are more turned to you in worship, Lord, in lives and uh, lifestyles uh, of honour and worship to you. Lord, help us to come to your word. Would you speak to us and do us good? Amen. Okay, I'm going to read the chapter first uh, relatively quickly. So it's going to come up on the screen, so hopefully you can follow along. Can you read that? If you can't, uh, turn to chapter 42 in your own Bible. So, when Jacob learned there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. And ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob didn't send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's, or Jacob's, sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. Is that the right one? No. Beg your pardon. Thank you. That's not the right one either, is it? Oh, it is. Beg your pardon. Okay, good. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. 
No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. They replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you are spies and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go. Take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. Then they said to one another, surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen? Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave, gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other trembling and said, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. They said, The man who is lord over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us as though we were spying on the land. But we said to him, We are honest men, we are not spies. We were 12 brothers, sons of one father, one is no more, and the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. Then the man who is lord over the land said to us, This is how I will know whether you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me and take food for your starving households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, so I will know that you are not spies but honest men. Then I will give your brother back to you and you can trade in the land. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. And Reuben said to his father, You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care, and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, my son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you're taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. Whew. So, last week we got to the point where Joseph, we started the story as a young man. You remember God had spoken to him. He's his father's favorite and the rest of his brothers don't like that. They try to kill him, then they relent and actually rather than killing him, they sell him. He becomes a slave in Egypt. He's imprisoned for many years. And we fast forward now. At the age of 30, he's been awarded this incredible job. We say prime minister or vizier of Egypt, second only to the king, the pharaoh. And he's done this uh, extraordinary thing, really. He's managed to preserve food for Egypt and the surrounding nations to carry them through a famine. He's an important guy, and he's done an incredible job. 
And this is the point that Jacob sends his sons to try and get grain. Sarah, can you put me back to the first slide of the um, reading, please? That would be great. Okay, so we're just going to go through this and just see what we can find here that's going to ask us some questions and teach us some things. So what we see first of all here is that the, the family of Jacob, this family of God, this chosen family who are going to carry the promises of God to the world, are at risk again. They're at risk of famine. They're actually at risk of starvation. So again, we see this keep repeating itself throughout the narrative, the story of the people of God. They're at risk again. And actually, Jacob marvelously says, well, what are you doing? You're just sitting looking at each other. Why would you not do something about it? And he sends his sons, who are not children, by the way. They're in their 40s and 50s at this point. And says, well, go and sort something out. Go and get food for us. And you may notice it says, Jacob is speaking to his sons. But then it says, 10 brothers of Joseph. Not 10 sons of Jacob, but 10 brothers of Joseph go. And we're preparing us for this meeting of the brothers and Joseph again. They've not met... Since chapter 37, when Joseph, as a 17-year-old, has been sold into slavery by his brothers. They've not seen him since. So we read that 10 of Joseph's brothers go, but Joseph's brother doesn't go with them. We said Benjamin, uh, the brother of Joseph, doesn't go with him. And remember that that's because Joseph and Benjamin are brothers of the same mother. So they are the beloved sons of Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. We had a friend to dinner last night, her name's Rachel, and she's got sons called Benjamin and Joseph. She said sometimes it takes people a while, and then they're like, ah, get it. So Rachel is uh, Jacob's favorite wife and has these two sons. And you remember her in the story that Joseph is very much the favorite of Jacob, which is where all this sorry tale begins. And now it seems Benjamin has taken his place and he won't uh, send him with him. So Joseph is governor of the land. This is like something out of a movie. Oh, they did make, they have made a movie out of this, right? This is like something out of an incredible film, isn't it? They turn up, these brothers, uh, amazingly, at the distribution center in Egypt where Joseph is at this time. Have you ever thought about that? There must be distribution centers all over this country for people coming to get food. They turn up at the Nile Delta uh, area of Egypt and um, lo and behold, Joseph is actually there, which is extraordinary in and of itself, that he, as the prime minister, the governor of the land, is there, and he sees them. And many other people have come. There will, will be many people flocking to get land. But these brothers come just at the moment Joseph is there. And what we see is this very dramatic unfolding as uh, Joseph close, plays his cards very close to his chest doesn't he? And uh, uh, to be honest, the brothers don't have any cards, do they? They hold no cards in this, in this relationship at all. Uh, they have no idea what's going on. And then we read this. They came and they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Does that remind you of anything? And the next slide says, then he, Joseph, remembered his dreams about them. He remembers that at 17, God gave him a dream of his brothers bowing down before him. That's one of the things that really got their goat, isn't it? This seeming arrogance of this young boy. Saying, oh, I had a dream and you're going to bow to me. Uh, didn't go down well at all. But here we are. He's 39 years old, we think, now at this point. Not 17. And then he remembered his dreams about them. And then... 
he accuses them of being spies. He doesn't uh, reveal who he is. He doesn't castigate them for what they've done to him. He, he plays his cards close to his chest and he accuses them of being spies on the land. And we don't really know why he does that, but I think we could probably forgive him for being suspicious of their character and, uh, and giving, taking his time just to test the water and see what's going on. So that sounds reasonable under the circumstances. I think it's very reasonable. These are the people who decided together to kill him. And then uh, when they thought that wasn't a good idea, they sold him to who knows where. And they assume him to be dead, long dead, I should think. And here we have this huge pivotal moment in the story, just this little phrase in the middle of this excerpt. And this is what they say. They say, no, no, we're not spies. We are honest men. There's these ten guys standing in front of the, the vizier of Egypt, fearing for their lives. They don't know who he is. We are honest men, my lord. We're not, we're not spies. We're honest men. How ironic is that? How ironic. This little scene. He knows what their honesty is like, doesn't he? He knows the color. He knows what, they, what they've done. And the other thing they say. He says, we were 12 brothers. And little do they know that the 12th brother is standing right in front of them. So much drama, isn't there? So much drama. We were 12 brothers. One of us is no more. Well, he is, actually. He is more, and he's a lot more. And he's standing there right in front of you. Joseph has good reason, right, not to trust these guys, and he puts them to the test. He takes his time, and he puts them to the test. He's like, well, let's just see, are you indeed honest men? Have you, in fact, had a change of heart, a change of character? Has what you've done to me and what you've been through, has it changed you? And I wonder also, his request is that they would go and bring the younger brother, prove that what they're saying is true. So he's like, well, you say uh, there's 11 of you, and you've left one at home. I want to see if you're truthful, if you really are honest men, so I want you to go and bring him. This is not a case of just like nipping across the park. This is a, a journey of hundreds of miles, but I want you to go and bring him. That's how you will prove yourself. I wonder if Joseph here thinks, I bet he's not even alive. I bet they've done to Benjamin what they tried to do to me. I wonder if he's just testing their integrity in that way. Are you really honest men? Does, he, does my brother even still live? Or have you done to him what you tried to do to me? Does he fear their motives? And then the last line of this slide here, he puts them all in prison, and then he says, actually, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to keep one of you as like a deposit in prison the rest of you can take food back to your families who are starving, don't forget. That's the backdrop of this and fearing for their lives. And I want you to bring him back. And he says, this is why I'm doing this, because I fear God. And this is remarkable. You stop a moment. This man has uh, been, he has risen to the ultimate power below the king in this nation, which is a nation of foreign gods. He's even married to the daughter of the priest of On, one of the major deities in Egypt. He's immersed in a culture 
of idol worship and foreign gods. He's been there. Well, he's been in Egypt now for years and years and years. He's been um, in this position of high power, which I imagine exposes you to all sorts of things in an idolatrous nation like that. But the central reason for his decision-making and his plan is that he fears God. I find that quite challenging, don't you? We don't live in ancient Egypt in the Middle Kingdom. Like Joseph, we live in 21st century London. It's a very idolatrous nation in lots of ways. And the central reason for Joseph's plan is like, I'm going to do this. Why? Because I fear God. Because the God of the Bible is still the central orienting factor in this man's life. That's incredible. We, we skim over these things. I find that so challenging. And he says to them, okay then, if you are honest men, if, and I think this is a pretty big if in Joseph's mind, capital I, capital F, if you are honest men, have had a change of heart, you can leave Simeon here and go back and get my younger brother. Go back and get your younger brother. And then what we see is this. The brothers then start to say to one another, they're talking to one another, and they say, look, we're being punished. This is about what we did to our brother. They don't know that this man is Joseph. They just assume that the reason they're in danger now, that they're being punished, that they're not just turned up and been you know, welcomed, given food and sent on their way, is because they're being punished by God. What for a heinous crime of years past? And they say, he pleaded for his life and we just didn't listen. We didn't see that bit, did we? When it happened, we didn't hear that exchange of Joseph pleading for his life, but he obviously did and the brothers haven't forgotten it. They haven't forgotten that awful moment. He pleaded with us. We betrayed him and that's why this is happening to us. These brothers are living with the guilt, uh, the regret, there's recriminations. H how long have they been having this conversation? How long is this circle? They've been going round and round the same thing. How long? 22 years, that's how long. 22 years they've been living with this. They've never come clean to Jacob. They've never confessed their crime. Jacob thinks that the boy was killed by a wild animal because that's what they told him. He's been mourning Joseph ever since. They've never confessed. They've never sought reconciliation. They've lived like this 22 years. Do you know how long 22 years is? Dom, stand up. <laughs> Turn around. This is Dom. He's 22. 22 years. It's a lifetime. It's a long time. 22 years ago, Dolly the sheep was born. Do you remember Dolly the sheep? It seems like a long time ago. That's 22 years. Titanic came out. 22 years. Uh, Princess Diana was tragically killed in a car crash. 22 years, a long time, isn't it? That seems like an age. I'll tell you what else seems an age ago. New Labour under Tony Blair. <laughs> 22 years, that's a long time. This family's been living like this, going of ha rehashing, living with the guilt for 22 years. And Reuben, the oldest, steps in, as he often does, and said, I told you, didn't I tell you not to harm him? You wouldn't listen. Now we've got to give an account. He, here we are. Can you see this? How many times have they had this conversation? How many times has Reuben said, I told you, I tried to stop you. How does he live with that? How have they lived with this? 
And then in another scene from Hollywood, they don't realize Joseph understands what they're saying. Because although he's speaking Egyptian and using an interpreter, and he looks like an Egyptian because he's got the hair and the makeup and everything, they don't know it's him. He understands every word. <laughs> and it makes him weep, unsurprisingly. But he carries out his plan, and he sends them back with grain to keep their families from starvation, and he puts their offering, the money they've brought to offer to him, he puts it back in their bags. And in a sort of reversal of the earlier events, he takes Simeon prisoner and keeps him. Why take Simeon? We don't know. Maybe Simeon was the ringleader in the whole thing in the first place. Um, maybe he thinks they won't come back for him. They didn't care about me. I bet they don't care about Simeon. Will they come back? Do they care? Have they really changed? Are they really honest men? And the drama continues. They stop along the way. There's hundreds of miles. Uh, they stop along the way. And somebody, one of them finds the silver. And he says, what's, what's this? Now, this is a good problem to have, right? <laughs> you've been given all this food for your families, provisions for the journey. Oh, and you find you've been given all your money back as well. It's a good problem to have. But actually, for these brothers and the state they're in, they see it as a reason for fear, not for gratitude. Or They see it as a reason for fear. And they say, what is this that God has done to us? And we know that it's Joseph that's done it. And a little reminder here from the writer is that we remember that all through this story, we've seen that Joseph is God's instrument, isn't he? Joseph is an instrument in God's hand to bring about God's plan and purposes. And again, here, what is, what is this that God has done? Well, Joseph did it, but he's the instrument of God. And when the brothers get home, they tell their dad everything that happened. I find it really quite interesting that what they don't do is say, we got all the food we need. We're not going to starve. You know, this we went, we went all that way, and he gave us what we needed. We're here, we're back. Isn't it amazing? They don't actually, maybe they do. We don't hear that bit. They just tell their dad about this encounter with this man who has tested them and actually has kept one of them in prison. We are honest men. They recount this again to Jacob, don't they? Said, we, we said to him, we're honest men. And again, the irony just baffles me because they stand before Jacob, their father, as total liars. They have come to their father and told him that his beloved son was killed by an animal when they have betrayed him and sold him. They are liars. And they recount to their dad, we told him we're honest men, sons of one father from Canaan. They should make another film out of this. Oh, they I think they have recently, actually, haven't they? Yeah, we should see it. We should show it here one day. They're liars. Poor Jacob has been mourning the death of Joseph for 22 years. And now, of course, he's lost Simeon as well, he thinks. All the silver's returned. Every man finds his money back in his sack. Again, it causes the whole family to fear what is going on. They're confused. They're lost. 22 years has not eased the grief of Jacob, it seems. He's still talking about it. He says to the brothers, this is your doing. You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. He probably assumes he'll never see Simeon again. And now you want to take Joseph. Sorry, take Benjamin. Everything is against me. 
I wonder if you've ever said that, everything is against me. It's how Jacob feels in this moment. It's all gone so wrong. And the big picture is, of course, that this family that carries the promises of God and is going to be pivotal in the story of God's plans for all time has been saved from starvation. Let's hold that uh, to the side. Joseph has saved their lives. And uh, it reminds me, right back in the beginning of the story, if you remember, Joseph as a young boy is sent to see his brothers who are out miles and miles away looking after the flocks. And Jacob says to Joseph, he said, I want you to go and see for the well-being of your brothers. 22 years before, he sent him with that message. Go and make sure your brothers are all right. Go and see to their well-being. And here we are, 22 years later, he saved them from starvation, the whole family, and their huge extended family, which was not small, as we read later on. That's amazing, isn't it? God's plan. God had a plan to save this family, and it involved this great convoluted story that we've been looking at. But Reuben, the oldest one, he's always trying. <laughs> he's a trier, Reuben. He keeps popping up. He's always trying. But I find it interesting that Reuben's solution here is to say to Jacob, let me take Benjamin. I'll look after him. I promise I'll bring him back to you. Don't worry. And if I don't, you can kill my two sons. You find that? Like, so the consolation for two dead sons is two dead grandsons. <laughs> How lost is this family? Do you think that's a consolation to Jacob in his old age? I find even that, I think, oh, Reuben. What, what is that? What kind of an offer is that? And he's trying to do the right thing, isn't he? And Jacob, heartbreakingly, he says, uh, my son will not go down with you. He's standing and talking to ten sons, and he's saying, my son will not go because I don't want to lose him. It's just heartbreaking. Like they must be thinking, well, what about us? They care about us. The favoritism that we saw at the beginning of the story over Joseph has just repeated itself over Benjamin. Benjamin is in his about early 30s by now. Can you imagine how, what Benjamin's life has been like since Joseph went? Yeah, Jacob doesn't want to let him out of his sight. He's in his 30s. He's the favorite. He's cosseted. He's looked after. No, 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 you won't take my son. My son. You won't take him down. He is the only one left. It just keeps getting worse, doesn't it? This is like parenting no-nos. <laughs> don't do this. Don't let all your kids know that one's the favorite. You don't have a favorite, obviously. <laughs> I, only have, I only have two children. They argue about who's the favorite. There isn't one. Stop press. There isn't one. So this old habit is still there. There's favoritism expressed throughout not just this generation, but the previous generation and the one before. It just keeps happening. It's, it's broken. It's failing. It's dysfunctional. He won't let Benjamin go, but he doesn't really care about the other ten. He's quite stubborn, isn't he? He doesn't come across well out of this, Jacob, I don't think. Okay, now that's where the chapter ends. <laughs> I was like, oh, I told you, didn't I? I did set you up for that. It's like, oh, what happens next? Well, next week you're going to find out. Uh, Sarah Gelly's preaching next week, so you've got to come back. 
find out what happens next. But just some questions for us as we read this story. Uh, questions, they, are, they come in the, it, this next bit comes in the shape of four questions, and they are questions to you. They're also questions to me, obviously. I've been asking myself them all week. But these are the questions that I brought out of this narrative. What story do you tell? The thing that strikes me about this is the different ways that the characters in the story use their words. Sounds like I'm talking to toddlers, doesn't it? Use your words. How they use their words to tell the story of, of their life, of who they are, of their situation. We've got Jacob. Everything's against me. Everything's against me. Benjamin is all I have. You know, that's the story that he's telling. The brothers, what has God done to us? Reuben's presumably uh, often said, I told you, I told you not to harm him. And then Joseph in chapter 41, which was last week's scripture, actually, we're told that he has two sons. So Joseph, while he's in Egypt as governor, he has two sons and he names them words which mean, uh, let me get this right, God has made me forget all my trouble and my father's household. He names a son, like God has, I've forgotten that, what's behind. I'm moving on. He names the other son, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The story we tell about ourselves is so powerful, isn't it? Um, I, we was, uh, I was with a friend last week, and um, she was helping um, a Syrian lady who had a hospital appointment. She's got a medical condition, and she had a hospital appointment. So my friend went with her. And she was telling me about this afterwards, and she said, you know, this poor woman, she's got a condition, but she's going to be all right. But she keeps saying things like, the doctor said, how do you feel? She said, oh, I feel like I'm dying. So I don't know what's going to become of me. I, I just I feel like I'm dying. And my friend said to her, well, you're not. So you're not helping. She said, the great thing was, the doctor said exactly the same thing. You're not dying, and this is not helping. And actually, words are so powerful, aren't they? There's loads of things in the Bible. Proverbs is full of it. Um, James in the New Testament has got lots of things about the power of words. What's the story that you're telling? If you want to feel useless, just keep saying you're useless. If you want to feel abandoned, just keep saying you're abandoned. Words are powerful, and you are not abandoned, by the way, or useless. So what story do you tell? And I think this applies not only to uh, many people here have got very dysfunctional, painful family situations, rather like Joseph, um, or not like Joseph, but in other ways. And the way we tell that story, the words we use, have real power. It's not that we deny things or we uh, put things, you know, we, we kind of ignore or brush stuff under the carpet. But the power of words over who we are and over what has God has done for us is important. If we fast forward a few hundred years from this story, you know the story of the Exodus, where the Israelites have been in slavery for many hundreds of years, and God miraculously delivers them. Uh, there's the miracles come in the form of plagues and then the form of this miraculous rescue as the sea parts for the people of Israel to leave. And then what happens is in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Bible of theirs in the Old Testament times, they just never stop going on about the Exodus. 
in psalms, in prophecy, poems, songs. They just tell the story. This is who we are. We're a redeemed, rescued, delivered people. Our God is strong. He is full of power and full of love. And this is who we are. And they go on and on about it. You, you'll notice it in your Bibles if you haven't already. And that's, it becomes an enduring refrain. What's the enduring refrain in the story you tell? It's the faithfulness of God, the goodness and the power and the love of God in your lives. Second question for us is, have you forgiven? Uh, I find it so heartbreaking as we hear these brothers just rehashing this awful guilt and regret and these recriminations between them. And we don't know how much that has colored their lives, but we assume just so much. It's so sad. And we can do the same thing, actually, can't we? We can have suffered or we can have sinned. And let's be honest, we've all experienced both. And we can live with that kind of rehashing and re, uh, yeah, re refusing to allow that to go. And we can allow situations past or present to really define us. And I think that's what these brothers have done here. It really defines them. And that's partly because they've not repented and they've not confessed and they've not put things right. And we have an opportunity to do that. And remember, Joseph is the wronged, not the wrongdoer. But he's managed to release that and to move on. He's released people. And that's what forgiveness is like, really, isn't it? It's like releasing people and being free from regret, from, from guilt, and from some of the pain that that can inflict on us. There's a, in in uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul writes this um, in a little bit where he's talking about worship, what it means to be a worshipper, which is about all of life. Is it's about the way we live and orient ourselves around God. And he says this, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That releases us from worrying about what they do because we can't do their part for them. Whatever the situation is in your mind right now, as far as it depends on you, worshipping God means living at peace with people as you can. And the third question, are you trusting God? When I said this to my friend the other day, she said, well, what does that really mean? <laughs> oh, that's a very good question. It's sort of thing we say a lot. What does it really mean? And I think it makes me think of what Joseph said when he said, I'm going to do this. Why? Because I fear God. Because God is the one around whom I orient my decisions and my plans and my thinking. And that's a choice. Joseph chooses that course of action. It's a choice to trust God, isn't it? Sometimes it's through gritted teeth at times when it's hard. Do we choose to take responsibility for our response and attitudes to things in a way that I feel these brothers just haven't done yet? We can choose. Our defining characteristic can be one of trusting and fearing God. Or it can be one uh, of choosing to carry on blaming ourselves or blaming others or getting locked into those situations. Are we trusting God? And I know that for the vast majority of people in this room, because I know you, the answer is yes. The answer is yes, we are trusting God. We are worshippers. We are orienting our lives and our plans and our um, actions around him. But it's a challenge every day, isn't it? And the fourth question is, do you believe in transformation? 
because I feel like those things that I've just, those questions I've just asked feel a bit, can feel a bit bleak. So this is hard, God. <laughs> this is hard. And for some of you, you're thinking about situations past and present and fears, possibly future. And you want to say yes. You want to say, I'm telling the right story. I have forgiven and I am trusting. And the only re reason we can do that is because of the transformational power of God in our lives, isn't it? And as Christians today, which means we've surrendered to this same God, the God of the Bible, who we have now seen in Jesus Christ, we're his children. And the Apostle Paul goes further. He uses the, the phrase, not only are you children that are born of God, you are new creations. You've been made new. God is bringing about an eternal new creation, which is our hope forever. But that has started now. We are transformed when we meet Christ, aren't we? We're transformed, and then every day, the Bible tells us, we can expect to keep being transformed because the Spirit of God lives in us. So, things like, you know, sinful attitudes we know we have, things that we still suffer from what people have done to us, guilt we feel because of things we've done, lies we've told, we have been set free, we are new creations, and I believe today that some people are going to get set free and move on, just like Joseph had. We don't want to get stuck in those circles and cycles of regret and guilt and keep rehashing the same stuff. And I, I believe with all my heart that when we meet Jesus, we are new. That's what the Bible says. You're a new creation. Everything changes in that instant. You are no longer guilty before God you are free of that guilt because of what Jesus has done, not because of what you've done or because of what I've done. But every day as we live in communion with God, as we're filled with this spirit, we know more and more of the transforming power of God, don't we? I know so many stories in this room. It's like it, didn't, it wasn't just all done and dusted on day one. We're still <laughs> a work in progress. I certainly am. And I know some of you certainly are. But he's at work in us. And as Sharon said earlier, was it Sharon? We know he'll carry to completion what he started. Amen? Amen. Can we stand? I'm just going to pray. You may want to just um, speak to God. You may want to repent of some things. You may want to say, I submit again, Lord, to orient myself around you. I want to be changed in this way or that way. And then afterwards, I'm going to invite people as we break to come for prayer as well. And just allow God to meet you in whatever way. He's spoken to you.